Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Compass. I'm Chris, and I'm so glad that you decided to join us today. Um, we are live with you on our Compass live stream uh, here, at, and uh, I'm just thrilled that you joined us. I cup Really quick, before we jump into the message today, I want to talk to you about something that is really important that is coming up this week, uh, and that is our first Tuesday prayer meeting. Uh, every, every first Tuesday of the month, we have a prayer and worship night, uh, and for us, living in this kind of remote world, uh, our prayer meeting happens as a live stream. And so I'll tell you this, and you probably know this, if there was ever a time where we needed prayer, this is it. This may be the most important, important gathering and important thing that we do as a church. So I really want to encourage you, mark your calendar for this Tuesday at 630 and that you can join us here on our Facebook page. You can join us on YouTube at Compass Church Online, uh, or you can join us on our website at live.compassbn.com. Wherever you want to join us, however you want to engage, we really encourage you. I really encourage you. Join us for the first Tuesday prayer meeting. It is super important. Okay, I'm going to jump out of that. We've got kind of a big topic to talk about today because there's a lot happening in our world right now. And unless you live under a rock... Um, you are aware of the death of George Floyd at the hands of police officers, uh, and and you are obviously also aware of the protests and that have, and some of those protests have expanded into some rioting as well. But it's happening nationwide, and if you're on any sort of social media, uh, you can see the divide uh, that's kind of been drawn. But you can also see the very genuine outpouring of anger and grief and helplessness, I think, that many people feel. Um, and they're expressing that in any way that they can possibly think of on social media. And many people are expressing that in protests in, in many of the bigger cities around our country. And so because of what's happening today, I wanted to kind of stick a pin in the message series that we were going to start this week. We'll start that next week. Uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Jesus and injustice. I know that both sides, actually not, not even both sides, saying both sides indicates there's only two sides to all of this, but, but many people in, in the debate about what's happening in our country right now as it relates to race, as it relates to police brutality, as it relates to our role and responsibility in this, uh, a lot of people are, are clinging on to Jesus as, as the voice or the spokesperson of, of, of their angle. And saying, this is what Jesus thinks. And this is what Jesus would do. So what I wanted to do is I just wanted to lead us, uh, just lead our church through a discussion about who Jesus was, where he came from, and what Jesus's attitude was toward injustice, the type of injustice that, that we are seeing today, and really how, how Jesus responded to injustice then. And maybe how that speaks to us about how we as followers of Jesus, and maybe you're with us today and you're not a follower of Jesus. And if you're not, thanks for joining us. Super cool that you're here. Uh, but maybe even for you as not a follower of Jesus, how you could apply Jesus's approach to dealing with injustice to your life. So, so let's talk about Jesus and injustice this morning. And to start off and to understand really what Jesus was doing and what he was teaching, it helps us to understand where Jesus came from. It's really important for us to grasp what was his background? What was Jesus's life like? Jesus didn't just drop out of heaven at age 30 into his ministry. Um, he lived in a place. He grew up with family. Uh, he grew up in a cultural context. And that cultural context 
speaks to his attitudes and his approach towards injustice. And to understand that, we need to understand first century Palestine, where Jesus lived and where Jesus grew up. Now, Israel was, a, was its own nation. It was its own kingdom for, for centuries. Uh, and then through a series of events, it was just kind of whittled down into nothing. And ultimately, where we find uh, the nation of Israel, we'll call it, is that they are under Roman oppression. Rome has swept the known world. And, uh, and what they've done is they've consolidated into one kind of Roman government. And Roman citizens, if you are from Rome, this was great for you because it meant power uh, it meant resources. Uh, it meant slaves. Uh, it also meant opportunity. And every every new nation that was taken, uh, it meant that there were opportunities for you as a Roman citizen to, to make more money, to expand your land, and to expand your opportunities. But for the nations that, Roman, that Rome had oppressed and had taken over, it was very different. Jesus growing up in, in Palestine, a Roman-occupied territory at the time, uh, was was very difficult for for the people of Israel, for for people who were from that nation who were not from Rome or, or who were not Roman citizens. In fact, uh, we know this, that, that the nations that Rome swept into, and even just how Rome was as a nation, there was huge economic disparity. Uh, in fact, the way Rome was set up economically, there was like a top 10% of elites. If you were in the top 10%, you had money, you had land, you had houses, you had opportunity. If you're in the top 10%, everything was pretty good for you. And then there was this bottom 90% who lived at a poverty or subsistence level. There was no middle class really that existed in Rome. You were either on the top elite or you lived completely on the bottom. And when you lived on the bottom, again, no middle class, but you, when you lived in this bottom 90%, there weren't opportunities for you. There was, there was no way to move up. We, I mean, people talk about the American dream and they say that the American dream is this, is that wherever you come from, if you work hard enough, you can make a path for yourself. There was no Roman dream. If you lived in Roman-occupied Palestine, where you started your life was where you were going to end your life. Your life was the best it could ever be. And it also meant this, that when your children started their lives, that their lives were going to start where yours started and their lives were going to end where yours ended. And their children's lives were going to start where yours started. And their children's lives were going to end where yours ended. Because there was just almost no way to break out of the economic oppression that, that existed in Rome at the time. Jesus was poor. Jesus was in this bottom 90%. And Jesus wasn't at the top of this bottom 90% where it's like he maybe had a little bit of land and maybe had a little bit of opportunity. Jesus lived toward the bottom. And the thing is, in Rome at the time, the elite lived off of the taxation and the labor of the poor. So this top 10% lived off the efforts and the taxes of the 90%. I know this is like, let's go sci-fi for a second, but think the Hunger Games, right? Um, like the top 10% of Rome was Pan Am, and then the districts were all the rest of the 90%. And some of you guys are going to have to Google this right now. That's okay. We'll wait. Now, I'll just do it later. But, but if that helps you to understand what it was like for Jesus and where Jesus came from. And the same oppression that maybe you see in the Hunger Games from, from the people who worked in the poorer districts, Wikipedia, do it. Um, that same oppression and that same hopelessness and that same sense that nothing will ever change for us, that was Jesus's world. That was where he was from. Now, now Jesus was from uh, a town called Nazareth. Very little 
farming village really estimated that maybe there's just several hundred people that were from the village of Nazareth, which at the time, if you think about it, was just a handful really of families or clans that just kind of lived in this area. And Nazareth was in this region called Galilee. Now, Galilee was a region, think, think maybe the size of a county, a little bit bigger. Galilee was about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the economic, financial, uh, governmental heart of, of Judea and Palestine at the time, the, the bigger, broader area. And so that was, Jerusalem was kind of where uh, opportunity was in the big city. Galilee was 60 miles north of that. Now, in the region of Galilee, there were Roman citizens were coming in and they were trying to build up some Roman style cities. So like there was a, a Roman style city or two in the area of Galilee. In fact, Nazareth would have been a little town, like a suburb of what was trying to be built up as a Roman style city at the time. But as you could probably imagine in an area that's occupied where there's no economic opportunity, that the city that was built around Nazareth drew all the resources from the little towns and villages like Nazareth, drew all the taxes drew all the wealth. And in the little farming village that Jesus was from in Nazareth, uh, they were basically subsistence farmers. And so what would happen is Roman citizens would own the land that they had taken from the people of Israel to begin with. They would own that land and then they would allow the people of the village to work those farms. And then the people who worked the farms would have to kick up the majority of what they grew. And maybe they could live off of a little bit of what they grew, but they could never own their own land. There was just no opportunity. This was Jesus's background economically. This is where he came from. In fact, Galilee as a region was so, I mean, it's just held in really such contempt. It was just such a, a small little backwater place that even when Jesus's ministry started and, and people started seeing him do miracles, it's recorded in one of the gospels that a guy goes up to another dude. He's like, hey, I think I found the Messiah. And it's this guy named Jesus. And he's amazing. He's from Galilee. And the, this other guy's response is literally, Galilee, it's like nothing good comes from Galilee. So Jesus from a backwater under Roman oppression, no economic opportunity. In fact, we don't know this about Jesus because there's not a lot of specific information about his life before his ministry. But people like Jesus, who probably lived like he did at the time, they might have been from Nazareth, a little farming community. They might have been from a large family that didn't have enough resources to take care of everyone once they got bigger. And so uh, they might have sent their sons to, to go work as construction workers or builders in some of the areas where the Roman government was building up these Roman cities. Jesus was a carpenter, or a tecton is what he was described as. Probably a carpenter, stone worker. He was a builder. Um, it's possible that Jesus didn't even really spend a lot of time with his family in Nazareth as he grew up because they might not have been able to afford it and that he may have been sent or may have had to go to some of these surrounding areas to build up Roman cities, to build up uh, these buildings to celebrate Caesar or the Roman gods and to be part of that and never be able to get ahead doing it. That was Jesus's background. In fact, Jesus, we know that during his ministry, his three years of ministry, he was totally itinerant. He didn't he didn't have a, a home base or a home that he went back to. And the truth is, is that he probably was itinerant because he probably didn't have a home. He was probably itinerant because, you know, 30-year-old Jesus probably didn't have the opportunity to be able to buy land or to buy a home. As many other people who came from the places Jesus came from did, as many of the, of the, the young men and women who grew up in Galilee uh, didn't have any opportunity. 
in addition to that, this, this background of where Jesus came from, it was this, the thing that was valued was, was honor. Jesus grew up in a culture of honor and there was no honor in being poor. None. In fact, Jews, Jews viewed uh, financial resources and viewed wealth as God's blessing. And so if you were wealthy, that means God was pleased with you and he was rewarding you. Conversely, if you didn't have wealth, there's a reason that God must not be blessing you and you're, you must be doing something wrong. And if you did something as good as we did, well, then God would bless you. So maybe you have sin or dishonor. Romans, they viewed freedom as, as the highest honor. And so in this culture of honor, Roman citizens looked at freedom as, as the greatest thing to strive for. But freedom came with, with financial resources. And if you can't afford freedom, if you can't afford a home, if you can't afford to live in free or to live free, then you, again, you have no honor no honor and and no way to change it at all. So let me illustrate this and we're we're, we're going to get into this in just a second but like imagine that you play a a big game of Monopoly with a couple of friends. And by the end of this game of Monopoly, there's one person at the Monopoly table and they have just got all the hotels, they got all the big places that they own, they've got all the money and you've just got like a railroad. And you're just sitting on your railroad and you just have a tiny little bit of cash when this game of Monopoly is over. That stinks. And I don't play Monopoly because I want to flip the board all the time, just so you know. But but that's terrible. Now imagine this. You've ended that game of Monopoly, but now every time you play Monopoly for the rest of your life, you have to start with only what you had when you ended that last game. Which means you start with your little railroad, you start with your little tiny stack of, of tiny bills, but your friend keeps coming back to the table with all of his hotels, all of his resources, all of his money, all of his properties, and then you play again. Obviously, what happens? He gets more. You try to hold on to what little you can. Every time you play Monopoly, that's the rules. Now imagine this. Now imagine that every time your children play Monopoly, that they have to start with the, what little resources you have, and that your friend's children playing against your children, that they get what your friends have for eternity. That was what Jesus grew up in. That's what his culture was like. That's, that's how he struggled. The economic oppression, really, that he was struggling under. The political oppression that he was under, under the Roman government. And here's the thing. Like, Christians, this is important, okay? This is important for you as, as a follower of Jesus to understand. This is where Jesus came from, but this is where God chose Jesus to come from. Jesus could have been sent to be raised in any family in the world. Jesus could have been sent to, to uh, be born into a wealthy Jewish family that lived in Jerusalem, that were Roman citizens and had a lot of opportunity and a lot of political connections and a lot of power. That's where God could have sent Jesus, but God didn't. God chose to send Jesus to an extremely poor family in an extremely poor region that was oppressed by the Roman government that was looked down on by his own people to a place where Jesus on his own would never have any opportunity to go beyond that at all. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, um, you don't have to assume with us that that's where God sent Jesus to be born, but that's where he came from. And knowing that is important because Jesus experienced the oppression of people whose land was taken away from them. 
Jesus experienced the oppression of economic inequality. Jesus experienced the prejudice and bias against his position in the culture that he lived in and, and, and a prejudice and bias against where he was from, even from his own people. And his standing came with no hope of change, personally, or even worse, generationally. See, Jesus knew injustice because he lived injustice. Jesus understood oppression because he lived oppressed, and he saw injustice and oppression inflicted on the people that he loved. He didn't just live this alone. He lived it with his mother and his brothers and his sisters and his family and his friends. Jesus was raised in this unjust and oppressed culture. Now, perhaps for some of you who are watching this with me today, it, this doesn't sound so different from the experience of some people who live in our world. Perhaps you may be one who thinks that this doesn't sound that different from some who live in our own country. But it's important for us to understand this because this frames Jesus's ministry for us. It frames what he did and why. Jesus didn't, didn't come from some upper class, middle class family who had all that he had and came to preach the kingdom of God. Jesus came from nothing, from oppression, from prejudice and bias. And he stepped into our world to usher in the kingdom of God. And there's one thing that Jesus did that I want to look at specifically today, understanding this background. Um, and we're going to look at something that happened in Jesus's life at the very beginning of his ministry. In fact, this is one of the first things that Jesus ever did when his ministry started in John chapter 2. So here's what, here's what happens. In John chapter 2, 13 through 14. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle and sheep and doves for sacrifices. And he also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Okay, so background. The temple was the center of economic, political, religious life for all Jewish people. It was the center of everything. Uh, and and good, good Jewish people had to go to the temple regularly to offer sacrifices. And so Jesus is at this time, again, the very beginning of his ministry. And this, may, this is really his first trip to Jerusalem when his, after his public ministry has begun, the very beginning of it. And, and let me give you some background on the temple. When, when someone like Jesus would make a trip to Jerusalem and would make a trip to the temple to make sacrifices or to bring worship to God, the temple required something called a temple tax uh, or a temple fee. And it was this fee that, that went to pay to support uh, the, the care for the temple and the care of the priests who, who did the temple duties. And I, I said duties. My wife is going to laugh at that. Um, she is laughing at that. But this temple tax was a fee that could only be paid in Jewish coin. It could only be paid in, in temple coin. Because at the time in Roman oppressed Israel, what did Roman coin have on it? It had an image of Caesar. Now for Jewish people, that was idolatry. That was a graven image. And it would have been heretical to take a Roman coin into the temple because it would have been the image of someone that the Romans said was a god or the son of a god and, and putting it in the Jewish temple. So you had to pay your temple fee, your temple tax with Jewish coins. 
Now, most people didn't have Jewish coins because they lived in a Roman culture, in a Roman society, particularly if you weren't from Jerusalem, where maybe there was some more Jewish coin being distributed around. And so what would happen is for someone like Jesus, who traveled 60 miles to get to the temple, he would go in and he would take his Roman coins and he would go to these tables where there were money changers. And what they would do is they would trade out uh, your Jewish coins or your Roman coins for the equivalent in Jewish coins so that you could pay your temple fees. But it went beyond that uh, because so many thousands of people um, came up to these great feasts and to all of these, these things that happened in the center of temple. Again, the temple was the center of Jewish religious political uh, life because so many thousands of people were coming through. Changing the money was a, a very profitable business. So what these money changers would do is they would say, I'll take your $1 in Roman coin and I'll give you $1 in Jewish coin but you also have to give me 25 cents in Roman coin. And they would charge a 25% fee, maybe a 30% fee, maybe a 50% fee. Because the people who came, especially from areas like Galilee that had nothing, had no opportunity, no access to Jewish temple money, had to change their money. And so the money changers were taking advantage. And it, and it resulted in this, this system that ended up... Um, in the system that, that had fraud and oppression, particularly to people who were poor, because they were, they were losing so much more of what they needed. Also, according to Jewish law, uh, when you came into the temple, it required the sacrifice of two doves or pigeons. It was, it was a required sacrifice. Now, if you were traveling from Galilee, if you traveled that 60 miles, bringing birds was not easy, okay? Like, I'm at, unless you're a magician. If you were a magician at the time, yeah. You know, those guys had no problem. Most people weren't magicians, trained magicians at the time. And so Jesus not being one, he would not have been one of these people who was traveling birds down to the temple. And so when you came into the temple, there were the people who could sell you the animals that you needed to sacrifice. But a dove that might have cost two coins in Galilee would cost eight coins at the temple. I, perfect example. Like right now, my wife really wants to buy a portable inflatable hot tub for our house. When this whole thing, the whole lockdown came down, she's like, let's just get one of these. And at the time they were about $300. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And I just put it off and put it off, put it off. Finally, when I was ready to look at it, because so many people are staying at home and so many people are looking for things to do, they're buying portable hot tubs. They're like $1,200 right now for the same hot tub. The prices have been jacked up, taking advantage of people. And that is what was happening in the temple. There was this lucrative business selling birds and selling other animals for sacrifice that they would raise up these exorbitant prices. And who did that hurt the most? The religious poor who were coming just to worship God and had to pay more just for the opportunity to step into the temple. So we know this, that Roman oppression, it replicated, Roman oppression was brutal economically, but it was replicated within the religious Jewish leadership. Because the religious Jewish leadership, the temple priests who lived in Jerusalem, they were in the top 10%. They were in the elite of Roman society who lived on the backs of the oppressed and the poor. And again, what we see is what we see Jesus has grown up in. And in the temple, we see another institutionalized system of oppression to the poor. This was, this was the institution of the temple. The oppression of poor people in money changing and in purchase of sacrifices at prices that were high was institutionalized oppression to people who were poor. It limited access 
to the center of Jewish life. And if you were like Jesus from a poor region in Galilee, you couldn't have access because you didn't have the resource to the power and religion at the center of temple life because you only had access if you could afford it. Jesus understands the oppressed because he was the oppressed. Again, Jesus understands the oppressed. He was the oppressed. The story continues. Jesus walks in and he sees what's going on in, in, in the temple. He sees the money changers making a profit off of the poor. And he sees the, the exorbitant jacked up prices on sacrifices that on animals that, you know, five miles down the road would be half that price. And he gets mad. He's angry. He sees this institutionalized system of oppression within the temple, a place that should be protecting people and defending people. And this is what he does. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and he chased all of the money changers and all of the, the people who were selling sacrifices out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers coins all over the floor and he turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Another step back. This was the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, okay? So when Jesus goes into the temple, the center of Jewish power, Jesus didn't have a ton of followers yet. He didn't have an army of people standing behind him. He didn't have this groundswell of support that he could leverage for this. But Jesus had had enough. He'd had enough of the oppression. He'd had enough of this system that was built on the backs of people who were poor and oppressed. And he started flipping tables. Now that's strange, isn't it? Because that doubt doesn't sound very Jesus-like. You know, if I'm like WWJD, I don't know that many of us would say that flipping tables would be, you know, the thing that Jesus would do. It doesn't, doesn't sound much like the heart of God, does it? Or does it? Let's look at some of the, some of the verses that Jesus would have been familiar with from Scripture. Psalm 82, 3 through 4. This is God speaking to the heart of his people. Give justice to the poor and to the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. Well, that's the heart of God. Isaiah 117 says this, learn to do good. This is from God to his people. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. God cares deeply about injustice. He cares deeply about those who are hurt by injustice. Now look at this. This, this is something that Jesus says, reflecting the heart of God in Luke 11. He's talking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. He says, what sorrow awaits you Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. He's like, you're so careful to follow all the little restrictions of the law in, in giving and in how you take care of your resources and just hitting that, that minimum mark that you're supposed to hit. But you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes. That's something you should do. But do not neglect the more important things. If you tithe, if you give financially to support the ministry of our church or to support uh, the kingdom of God, that is awesome. I applaud that. You should do that, okay? You should do that. 
But the heart of God and the heart of Jesus is that you cannot give your way out of what matters most to God. And that is this, that is caring for, for, for people who are oppressed, caring about injustice. Do not neglect these more important things. See, when Jesus flipped these unjust tables, Jesus was perfectly reflecting the heart of God. He was acting explicitly and expressly in the heart of his father, in the heart of our God. The story continues. The Jewish leaders are ticked, right? I mean, obviously Jesus came into the temple and he flipped all this stuff. This is their system. This is what they do. This is how they make their money and they profit. This is their power. And they come to Jesus and they, they demanded, what are you doing? And they say this, if God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. So now maybe these, these Jewish leaders in the temple, maybe these priests, maybe they had heard a little bit about Jesus. His ministry had started as in Galilee and as he was working his way down to, to Jerusalem, maybe they'd heard rumblings about this new teacher. Uh, maybe they were a little bit aware of, of what was going on. Maybe they were setting him up. In fact, I think this, when they ask this, they say, what authority do you have to do this, right? And what authority did Jesus have to do this? And like, if you really have the authority to do this, then why don't you do a miracle to prove it? Now, I think they probably knew that Jesus wasn't a magician, a trained magician, and he couldn't pull a bird out or else he wouldn't have paid the temple tax. And so they were like, okay, prove it, do a miracle. And there's no way they think that Jesus can or will do a miracle in the temple. And they're challenging him. They're questioning his authority to discredit him because they are ticked and they want to bring him down because you don't have the authority to change how this institution works. And if you think you do have the authority, then prove it. That's how institutionalized injustice works. Those who suffer from it never have access to the power, the authority, or the access within the system to change it. And it's clear that they see this man from Galilee and they think he doesn't have the power, authority, wisdom to be able to change this. But it's also clear that Jesus was outraged by injustice. And it was clear that Jesus was outraged at injustice and that outrage sprang from the heart of his father, of God. And in this moment, Jesus lays out his ultimate answer to injustice. And he says this. He says, all right, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. What? What are you talking about? It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You can't just rebuild it in three days. So Jesus is making this point. They don't totally grasp it yet. They don't understand it. In fact, the people who were with Jesus, the few disciples that he had at this point, they didn't really even understand what Jesus was saying, but this is what Jesus meant. And John lays it out for us in John chapter two. It says, but when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this. And remembering this, they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Jesus lays out his ultimate solution for injustice in this statement. Of all the things Jesus could have said to defend or prove his authority, he could have tried to argue on the merits of oppression. He could have tried to argue on the merits 
of the cause of those who were oppressed by saying that the Jewish religious leaders were just modeling the Roman oppression that was put down on the Jewish people. He could have fought on any number of fronts this injustice, but this is what Jesus communicated. And he said this, that the ultimate solution to injustice is the cross. The ultimate solution to injustice is the cross of Christ because the ultimate root of injustice is sin. It's the sin and brokenness that exists in every single one of us. And Jesus, in his outrage at the injustice, when challenged on his authority, and, and when communicating the very thing that, will, that can, can and will solve injustice, Jesus points ahead to his death on the cross and his resurrection to life, that Jesus is the solution to injustice for each and every single one of us individually, that Jesus dealing with our sin and our brokenness is the solution to injustice, to institutionalized systematic injustice. The ultimate solution to injustice is the cross. But it doesn't stop there. Because while the ultimate solution to injustice is the cross, sometimes the path to the cross requires and involves flipping some tables. The ultimate solution to injustice is the cross. And sometimes the path to the cross involves flipping some tables. Our ultimate problem is sin. The only solution to that is the cross. But listen, church, followers of Jesus, hear me on this. While the ultimate solution to sin is the cross, there are some people that we cannot reach unless we are willing to flip some tables for them. There are people who God loves, who God desperately wants to have relationship with him, who are so separated from access to the center of things that many of us have access that we take for granted every day, that we don't even understand is something that people have separation from, that don't have access to because of systems of oppression, systems of injustice that don't affect us. But church, I'm telling you, the heart of Jesus is telling you that there are those who, who we can't reach unless we are willing to flip some tables for them to invite them to the cross where God can ultimately deal with the issues of injustice. Hear me on this. It would be cruel to offer the gospel to a starving man and not give him food as well. It would be cruel to tell a starving man about Jesus and not offer him a meal. It would be wrong to offer the gospel to a sick woman and not care for her as best as we can. It's unjust to offer the gospel. It's unjust to offer scripture and the Bible and church life to the oppressed and not seek to write the very thing that they live with that's oppressing them, the injustice they faced. It is cruel to offer Jesus to people who are oppressed, who live under systems of institutionalized injustice and not offer to deal with the systems of institutionalized injustice that they live under. And here, here's an interesting little trivia fact, okay? This is, this is cool. Jesus comes in at the very beginning of his ministry. His first trip to Jerusalem when his ministry began, started with him flipping tables at the temple. 
But Jesus did this twice. You see, Jesus is the very last trip to Jerusalem. The trip he took to Jerusalem where he was arrested, crucified, and killed. On his last trip to Jerusalem, he went into the temple and he flipped the tables again. If there is something that Jesus does twice in the Gospels, Christians pay attention. Because at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus flipped tables of institutionalized injustice. And at the end of his ministry, before he died, knowing that his life was going to end, perhaps setting an example for those of us who are going to follow him, goes into the temple again and he flips the tables before his death. So what, what do we do? I think that's the biggest question. I know that there's a lot of of Christians, and maybe again, you're not a Christian, uh, but you've been struggling with what do I do? You're looking at perhaps um, the what feels like the systematized, institutionalized racism that you see existing in, in many of our systems. And you, you can see things like the death of George Floyd, but it's not just the death of George Floyd, it's Ahmaud Aubrey, and it's, it's, I mean, it's name after name after name of African-American man and woman who are killed over and over and over and over and over and, and you're like, it's wrong, but I don't know what to do. I can tell you that the rioting and the looting that we may see coming at the tail end of many of these protests, that's not Jesus flipping tables. That's not what this looks like. But let me give you some insight, just a couple thoughts as we wrap up right now. The first thing to do, okay, first thing to do is listen. We don't know what we don't know. The people in Jerusalem who had a little saying about how could anything good come from Galilee, they looked at Galileans as little backwater hicks who were uneducated, you know, didn't have much to offer. But they didn't understand the deep level of oppression that Jesus and his people faced. I don't understand the deep level of oppression and injustice that African Americans in our country feel. I don't know the deep level of injustice and oppression that people who are human trafficked feel. I don't know the oppression and injustice that children who are raised in our foster care system feel. I don't know. And many of you don't either. And so the first thing we have to do is just listen. Now this is hard because, you know, we were raised in places where maybe we didn't see this. And if we didn't see it, it's hard to believe that it's real. Well, it may not be real for you, but it may be real for others listen. After listening, second thing we can do, make a genuine attempt to put aside your preconceptions and experience and put yourself in someone else's shoes. Would you really feel any differently than someone if you had lived their life? It's easy to pop onto Facebook and say, well, you know, if you just do what the police say, you're going to be fine. And I don't understand what the big deal is. But if you had really lived the life of a young African-American man who every time he sees those lights is terrified, would you really behave or feel or think any differently? And I'm telling you, you don't know what you don't know. So you need to listen. And then you have to put aside your preconceptions. And I know this is hard, right? Because every time we feel like something is different than what we believe or what we know, we feel attacked. You are not being attacked by someone else's experience, okay? 
Let's put our feelings aside. Let's put our defensiveness aside for a moment and try to understand what it might feel like to be a person who has no access to the center of power, who has no financial access to change things, who has no voice that they feel like they have to make a difference. Put yourself in their, their shoes and think, would you really feel, think, or do any differently had you lived their life? And then finally, this third thing for followers of Jesus is the most important one. And that's this, we need to pray. We have to pray. We have to ask God to move. And I'm not talking about asking God to move and, and make things better across the world, that we do need to pray that. I'm talking about this. I'm saying pray and ask God to move in your heart. Ask him to help you understand. Ask him to reveal what tables need to be flipped in your life. Because when I really believe this, that that Jesus came to usher in a new kingdom. It's not, a, it's not a physical kingdom. It's not a government. It's not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom of a transformed heart. And that means this, that if there are tables to be flipped, they start in our hearts. Do I have tables of bias that need to be flipped? Do I have tables of defensiveness that are making it hard for me to listen that need to be flipped? Do I have tables of just a lack of love and empathy that make it impossible for me to empathize with someone who feels so hurt and so left out that all they can do is protest because that's all they have. Do I need to flip the tables of empathy and love in my life so that I can understand and relate to them? Because church, I want you to understand, we are the body of Christ. And if the cross is the ultimate solution to injustice, then we are the path to the cross. And that path sometimes includes flipping some tables. Listen, I, this is, I've gone so long on this, but, but when, when we fight for, when we fight against injustice for the least of these, we do it for Jesus. Jesus, when he walked on this earth, Jesus was the least of these. In George Floyd, Jesus was the least of these. In, in the lives of African-American men and women who deal with this every day, Jesus is them. Jesus is the least of these. Jesus is those who are facing oppression and injustice in systems and in institutions. And we as the church, it's time for us to stand up and flip them in our own lives, to flip them in our churches, to the extent that we are unaware that they exist, and to find ways to stand against injustice and oppression in our world so that we can point people to the ultimate healing solution, to the cross. Jesus, I thank you for what you did for us. And Jesus, I pray that you would forgive me for not understanding where you came from, for not understanding what you faced and not understanding that, Jesus, when you talked about caring for the oppressed and the poor and the least of these, that, Jesus, you are talking about not just yourself, but your family, your friends, people who you walked and lived with, 90% of the Roman world. But, Lord, that, that easily flips itself over into our world today. And, Jesus, whether we are willing to see it or not, 
injustice and oppression exists in our culture, in our society, and in our world. Forgive me, God, for not seeing it. Forgive me for selfishly keeping my eyes on myself. Forgive me, God, for, for continually putting myself in a place of taking offense, feeling like my own deeply held beliefs are challenged and therefore closing my eyes and ears to maybe what you wanted to be speaking to me about the experiences of others. And Jesus, I pray that while we as your church keep the cross as the preeminent and foremost thing, the most important thing that we can do, our mission is to take people to the cross and make disciples. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand and to see that the path to the cross sometimes accompanied by flipping tables of oppression and injustice because those tables are blocking our path to the oppressed and to those who live under injustice. Open our eyes and help us to be the church moving forward into the future that you desire us to be and that you want us to be. God, help those of us who are all into this Lord, to channel our prayers and our focus and our energy into the right ways. And I pray for those of us who are really struggling with this, God, who feel judged, who feel criticized, who feel like our way of life is being questioned and questioned and challenged as if we are part of something or as if we are racist or as we or as if we are the ones who are wrong. I pray that I pray that you would help us, God, to just put aside that defensiveness and to open our hearts to you to love you and to love our neighbor enough to put those things down and to listen and to love. I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com. 